The Irish Passport is grateful to our wonderful sponsors, BiddyMurphy.com. Biddy Murphy is the online shop for genuine Irish goods that are made on the island of Ireland, founded to bring the best of Ireland to the world by Tipperary man Ward Gahan. You can find jewellery in traditional Irish designs, fantastic woven products, and those iconic Irish flat caps, as well as all manner of artwork and gifts over at BiddyMurphy.com. So check it out. Before we get to the show, let's hear a quick teaser for 180 Degrees, a great podcast by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland that has also sponsored this episode. Do check it out. Hi, this is 180 Degrees, a new series about the changes we all need to make for a clean energy future. We'll be looking at the choices we make every day in our homes and our businesses, with transport, technology and in our communities and as individuals. So what is a sustainable home and what do we need to do to make our houses more efficient and more comfortable? I see it out there. I still see people coming up to me at exhibitions and trade fairs and they're, what about this piece of equipment? There's no, they've no real understanding of the very basics of what makes a sustainable home. And actually it's quite simple. It is about what, generating heat in the most efficient way that you can um, and then keeping it in. How do our decisions today affect our future? I think the decisions that people make between now and 2050, they're going to be different but they're going to be in an order that suits them best. So it's not appropriate for everyone to go out tomorrow and buy an electric vehicle. One, they're not available and two, we can't all afford it. So deciding, well, what can I change today that means I can buy an electric car the next time I buy a car? But these decisions are not always easy to make. When they see a sizable amount of their money going towards energy upgrades where they can't see it tangibly, like it's behind a wall, um, people can get a little bit upset, you know. And in the business world, many companies are confused as to what to do. In the smaller business space, smaller public bodies, the issue is they don't know what things are credible or not. They don't really know if I put a PV system on my roof, is that, is, is that making a big step in the right direction or is that making a tiny step or is it doing anything? I mean, if you're a cement company and you put PV in your head office, yeah, it looks great, but you're burning tons of tires and all sorts of reclaimed waste to create your product. Our energy future is all about choices. Choices we can make on an individual level. I'll move right to the big companies which have in their marketing departments sold us on the idea that we can't live without plastic bottles of water. That didn't happen because of something changing in our lives. That happened to us through marketing from big companies. And like I encounter people, you know, that are just uh, overwhelmed by the issue and almost don't want to talk about it. Then people are sort of overcome by guilt and then others don't know what to do. So if you're interested in the changes we all need to make for a better future, the first episode of 180 Degrees comes out on September the 26th. We hope you can join us. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more, head to seai.ie forward slash podcast. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, Let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh I'm recording. One, One, two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome, Fulcherov Galer. 
I'm Naomi O'Leary. And my name is Tim McInerney. We're delighted to welcome you here to the Irish Passport Podcast's second live show here at the Centre Culturel Irlandais in Paris. Yeah, and it's absolutely fantastic to be back here for a second time in this wonderful space. Uh, it's especially great to see so many of our listeners in person, and we're bowled over by the effort that some of you have made uh, to be here. A special shout out in particular goes out to the Watches, who came all the way from the United States. Yay! Hello, hello, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a big round of applause for the Walters, <laughs> and also to Francesca Lozito, who came all the way from Italy. <gasps> Amazing, for Francesca. <laughs> My goodness. And of course, welcome to all of you else as well, and all of you who might be discovering the Irish Passport podcast uh, for the first time. So you might know already uh, that we are an audio series. Uh, we look at the history, culture, and politics of Ireland. And for the last three years now, uh, we've been exploring the different aspects of what and who uh, make up the fabric of Ireland. So in each episode that we produce, uh, we investigate a new aspect of how the history of Ireland um, has shaped the country as it is today. Uh, so that can range from Brexit to fairy forts <laughs> or from the 12th of July to mother and baby homes. And tonight we're going to look to the future. So 2019 marks 100 years since the first Dáil, or Irish Parliament, um, was set up as an independent parliament in Ireland. Uh, that year also marked the beginning of a revolution, not simply the outbreak of the Irish War of Independence, but also a revolution in how people uh, defined and understood the country. Over the course of that century, the island has seen civil war, partition, 30 years of devastating intercommunity conflict. And during that time, the Irish nation was in many ways willed into being by the people of Ireland and continues to be so today. Right, so uh, from, from hence comes the title of our live show tonight. Um, it makes reference to the idea of inventing Ireland. And this idea of inventing Ireland was famously enough put forth by the Irish historian uh, Declan Kybert. Um, and he actually explained that idea to us on a previous episode uh, of the podcast. And something he told us that uh, I'll never forget is that when he was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, uh, he said that it felt like Ireland was like living in a huge set, a film set, that had been designed by the cultural revivalists or by William Butler Yeats. Mm -hmm. uh, so today we're asking, to what extent is Ireland still the country that it was 100 years ago or 50 mm -hmm. years ago or even 10 years ago? And what do the people of Ireland want it to be in the future? In 1919, Irish politics was being redefined by new thinking, radical politics with poets, playwrights, political innovators, feminists and socialists, all forming part of the mix of those who were coming up with new concepts of Ireland. In 2019, it feels like we're once again in a moment of rapid change. The last few years have seen huge grassroots movements moving to legalize equal marriage and abortion into landmark referendums, which had huge majorities that signaled a break with the Ireland of the 20th century. In many ways, it feels like a watershed moment, and like never before, radical change not only seems possible, but also perhaps necessary, given the fundamental change to our way of life posed by climate change. So for some time now, there has been a feeling in Ireland that what we're seeing on the ground is just the beginning of something bigger. So if we're going to get the chance to really reinvent uh, Ireland, what kind of country do we want to see? Uh, so to help us with these questions, we have invited three very special guests tonight uh, to, pre to present us with blue sky ideas for making Ireland a better place. Uh, we'll be hearing from Professor David Farrell, head of the School of Politics and International Relations of University College Dublin and academic leader of Ireland's Citizens' Assembly. 
We'll also hear from Sarah Maria Griffin, award-winning science fiction writer, uh, whose latest novel, Other Words for Smoke, came out this year, and Claire Bailey, leader of the Green Party of Northern Ireland. We also want your help as well. We would love to hear your blue sky ideas. If you had the chance, what one thing would you do to make Ireland a better place? So what we'd like you to do is if you have your own suggestions or questions that you'd like us to consider, please put them on Twitter and just include in your tweet <coughs> at Passport Irish. That way it will flag it up to us, we'll read them and we'll incorporate them into our discussion tonight. I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker, Professor David Farrell. Um, in the wake of the profound economic crisis a decade ago in Ireland, uh, David and other political scientists founded We the Citizens. Uh, that was a group that promoted deliberative democracy as a new way of governance that could avoid the mistakes of the past. Uh, the group succeeded in convincing the Irish government to set up the Constitutional Convention and then the Citizens' Assembly. And those were both forums that brought together ordinary citizens to decide what changes should be made in the country. Uh, David Farrell was the academic leader of the Citizens' Assembly and now works all over the world uh, helping to set up similar initiatives and design forums where citizens can have a role in deliberating policy. So please give a hand for David Farrell. Tim, Naomi, thank you very much for the invitation. I've been told I have to stand up. Um, it's, it's not a thing of mine, but anyway, I'll stand up. Um, and I, what I said I was going to talk about is democracy. Um, and I'm going to start with, with sort of, in a sense, breaking the brief, because the brief is blue skies, dramatic change. That's the sort of thing I would imagine blue skies is all about. Well, well my, the way I want to develop my argument in the few minutes I've got to open my remarks with you is to talk about the small things. I want to talk about the small things. I'll, I'll come to a bigger thing towards the end, but uh, I really want to focus on small. And I suppose the metaphor I want to use to make my case to you is a garden. If you, if you have a garden, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, we are, we have a lovely little garden in our little house in Dublin, um, you want to nurture your garden. You know, it, it's, it's, it, you, it's only in a very extreme situation that you're going to dig up your garden, you throw everything out and start afresh because you're going to have a long wait to see the, you know, the dividends that you might get from that. So you nurture your garden, you, you weed out the little bits that really aren't working very well or that are causing some difficulties. You, you feed as often as you can. Um, you put in new plants, perhaps some big dramatic plant, and I'll come to a big dramatic plant at the end. But I just want to urge that sort of degree of caution when we're talking about democracy. Democracy, as we know from events around the world today, is, is not in a very happy place right now. It's great business for political science, of course. We get lots of students wanting to study it for that reason. Um, but it is, it is quite a scary time to be living in terms of how democracies are. But one of the things that one can say about our country, Ireland, is that actually in some respects, and I don't say this too often, but in some respects it's a bit of a beacon. A bit of a beacon. It's, it's showing some examples of how democracies can be nurtured, how democracies can innovate, can evolve. And we've seen some very prominent examples, a few of them mentioned in terms of the recent referendums on social change in, in the opening remarks. So what I wanted to do in terms of my metaphor is talk about five, five things that I would love to recommend. And I'm starting small, so I'm starting with the really small little shrubs, but then I'll grow, I'll spend most time on the fifth item, which probably won't surprise people in terms of my current interests. So the five things I think we need to do to make our democracy better, and many of them would apply to other countries, not just to, not just to Ireland. And the first of those is to protect elections. 
something we never really had to talk about before. But now we really need to focus on, and focus on urgently, the integrity of elections. And it's, it's simple, mundane things like, how hard is it, is it to register to vote? In Ireland, it's actually quite hard to register. Uh, if you move home, you, ha you have quite a task to re-register to vote. In Ireland, you have to turn up on polling day to vote. You actually have to physically turn up to vote. It's those sort of things that need to be worked in terms of the integrity of elections. But of course, it's much more urgent things, not least the role of um, you know, internet bots and uh, inappropriate advertising, as we saw during the abortion referendum, or the sort of shenanigans that we saw in the Brexit referendum in Britain or the American presidential elections recently. So the integrity of the elections needs to be nurtured. And so if I had the magic wand and I was saying to a government, what are we going to do to improve the integrity of elections, it would be set up an electoral commission. Successive governments in Ireland have talked about setting up an electoral commission and they run out of time and we go to the next election and nothing ever happens. So that would be my first plan, set up an electoral commission and give it the teeth and the resources to go and improve and defend the integrity of the electoral process. The second, I'll go through these, the first couple of ones quite quickly, is to strengthen local government. Those of you who live in France will know that one of the features of French politics is you have a lot of local government. Ireland is the exact opposite. We have the smallest, the fewest number of councillors in the European democracies. We have the weakest local government in, among many European democracies. So for a country that prides itself in the access to politicians, we lack a whole level that is so important in terms of community politics and engagement with citizens in the area which matters most, their home life, the, the city or the town or the village or the hamlet that they live in. We need strong local government. That would be my second uh, wish for my garden. The third is open government. Open government. So we have freedom of information. As a citizen in Ireland, you can request information from your state. But you have to go and request it. You have to fill out a form. Sometimes you have to pay a fee. Sometimes the material that eventually arrives is so redacted it's of no use. Or it arrives in a form that you can't really make much use of. So why don't we seriously engage in open government? We want our citizens to really understand how government works and insofar as they might want to improve it. So why don't we move from a reactive to a proactive form of freedom of information? Just make it a norm that every public document, you can always make exceptions on issues to do with state security, for example, but just make it a norm for everything else that that document just goes up and goes up in a format, on a website, in a format that people can access. Just make government open to the people. Fourth, we should extend voting rights. So those of you who live in France, why should you, not, why should you be denied the right to vote in Ireland? I, I was forced out of Ireland in the recession of the 1980s. It took me 21 years to get home again. And in all those 21 years, I couldn't vote in an Irish election. That's wrong. Most other European countries allow uh, their emigrants voting rights. We have a lot of emigrants. There's a lot of talk right now of giving emigrants voting rights in presidential elections. That's, a, that's just a token. We should give our, our emigrants voting rights in our parliamentary elections. We should give immigrants the right to vote in our elections. We're increasingly in a mobile society. People in this room are a full you know, example of that. So why should moving around from country to country lose you the right to vote? And what about the country that you're working in and paying taxes in? You should have the right, right to vote. We should extend voting rights to 16-year-olds. 
That's long overdue. Why shouldn't 16-year-olds have the right to vote? They have many other rights. And we know from evidence in Austria and other countries where they've done that, that it does make a difference to the politics, and in a positive sense. It engages younger citizens at a much better age in politics. And once citizens are engaged, they remain engaged. It helps to stem the decline in voting behavior. So extending voting rights would be my fourth um, wish. And then I want to spend my final few remarks, if I can, on my fifth. And that is to make democracy more citizen-centered. I'm, I'm a strong believer in representative democracy. I'm a strong believer in the role of our elected representatives to lead us and our possibility to vote them out of office, vote the rascals out every five years or so when there's a general election. I'm fully in support of that. But increasingly, we're seeing more and more ways in which citizens want to express their voice. So we're gradually evolving from democracy that is not only vote-centered to democracy that is voice-centered. The right to protest, the right to glue yourself to a, a gate if you want to, the right to petition, um, the right to do all sorts of things to express your voice in between elections. And one of the most prominent ways, and this is really where Ireland has been a beacon, as I started my remarks in saying, is in also bringing citizens into the room to engage in serious, reflective debate about policy change. So Tim, in his opening comments, referred to the Constitutional Convention and the Citizens' Assembly in Ireland. And there's about to be a third Citizen Assembly established at the end of this year on, on gender equality. So Ireland is, is, is bla blazing a trail in terms of the, the development of this thing called deliberative democracy. What is deliberative democracy? It's taking a bunch of citizens, about this sort of number, let's say you're about 100, but the 100 people aren't, you all came because you were interested in coming. That's the wrong model for deliberative democracy. For deliberative democracy, it's like a lottery, it's like jury duty, it's random selection. So it's a market research company picking you or your name at random. That's the only way you get to be part of this. It's done randomly. You can't, you can't go because you're interested, or you can't go there because you ran for office, or you can't be involved because you're representing a certain sector. You are there solely because you've been selected in a lottery process by your government. And then you sit in a much bigger room than this, in a ballroom, with round tables, with trained facilitators, whose job it is to make sure that everyone has equal voice. There's no domination of the discussion. And then experts come in and bring you up to speed on the particular issue, and you deliberate in a calm, informed, reflective way on that. So if I had my fifth wish, and this would be the planting of the big tree in the garden, I would be saying to a future government, let's abolish the Shannad. It's a waste of money. We're one of the only democracies in Europe of our size as a unitary system that has a Shannad. We don't need one. And let's use the money that we would save from abolishing the Shannad to establish a citizen's council. A citizen's council which would be made up of a random selection of regular citizens that would, whose membership would rotate. So after every, say, let's say six months, a third of the members would cease to be members. And then there'd be another lottery to pick six and, and, and another third members. So over, let's say, an 18-month period, the membership completely changes. And give it a role. And I'll give you two examples of the sort of role it would have. One would be to set the agenda. So the Citizens' Council would take uh, soundings from other citizens, commission an opinion poll, listen to interest groups, and come up with ideas for an agenda item that needs serious, reflective discussion. And then it would say, let's set up a citizens' assembly to discuss that. So it would then establish a citizens' assembly 
to come up with some ideas that would then feed into the parliament. That could be one role it would have. Or second role it could have is the next time the government has an issue like abortion that they can't sort out themselves, they could give it to the um, citizen council for the citizen council to have a citizens assembly discuss it and help the parliament to take the difficult decisions that it needs to take. Now this may sound fanciful, but actually two months ago, this exact system was set up in uh, the German-speaking community of East Belgium. It's called the Ost-Belgian model. A couple of us were brought in to help design this for uh, the parliament, the German-speaking parliament of East Belgium. It's a permanent city council, a citizens council that's now up and running, carrying out exactly the sort of role that I've suggested we could have for our own citizen council in Ireland. So that, for me, would be the most important of the five wish lists for improving the garden of Irish democracy. And, and I, I look forward to discussing it further if you want to ask me any questions about it. But thank you. I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. That was absolutely fascinating. I loved those ideas. Really, really stimulating for and exciting ideas to think about the future. And also um, practical and feasible and things that I feel like could be done, which is just really interesting. And I, I can't wait to get back to that discussion later. Before we get to that, though, we're going to hear from our second uh, Blue Sky speaker of the evening, who is Sarah Maria Griffin. Sarah is one of a generation of young women writers in Ireland who are making a serious impact on the international literary scene. She's the author of Follies, Not Lost, Spare and Found Parts, and most recently, Other Words for Smoke. And she's also been awarded the European Science Fiction Chrysalis Award. And of course, she's also the host of the wonderful Juvenalia podcast with Alan McGuire. A round of applause for Sarah. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, my blue sky will start grey, forgive me. I promise we'll get there. I wrote everything down in my phone because my talk is about technology and I am a terrible millennial. So, uh, I write books, um, science fiction mostly. Something that science fiction does is that it reflects back our present through metaphors that deal with other worlds, stranger places or the future. It uses allegory to tell the truth. It's literary drag. I believe the truth is important, even if that truth comes in a costume or requires a decoding or an interpretation. For me, a major part of my role as a novelist is to be a curious person and to pose questions about being alive in what I do, not necessarily answers. So I'll be, I'll be asking some questions tonight rather than giving uh, anything too concrete. Um, what I try to do in my work is interrogate and not dictate. I report back from the strange worlds with things for readers to think about. I also, most importantly, tell stories. In talking about Ireland and its future, especially through the lens of technology and the internet, it is darkly easy to begin to tell a horror story or to paint a dystopia. Dublin, with a skyline full of malevolent cranes, erecting buildings where the internet is engineered, cultivated, mined, moderated, where the gig economy replaces traditional employment structures and disrupts community, where pubs and clubs are disappeared one by one, where people live in tents along the canal, where our homelessness soars as we arrive into a winter, where young professionals live in dormitory-style housing built in old orphanages, 
where there are in an inexplicable quantity of hotels springing up to facilitate conference after conference after conference. Where many areas in rural Ireland are left without broadband, without basic infrastructure, and are left behind in the screaming focus on Dublin, the tech capital of Europe, port town, little silicon docks that dreams of being a valley without any understanding of what that can cost and will cost. I started writing this piece and scared myself. I don't want to hold any audience hostage to a list of like the fracturing of culture and integrity that's happening as tech roots in the tax haven of the island. I lived in San Francisco for three years and three days and I've seen all, yeah, <laughs> and I have seen all of this before. <laughs> I am watching it happen again to my home. And I can tell you, dystopia is where we are now. So when it comes to projecting the future, I find it hard to think about where that story will go. I also don't want to stand here and tell you that we are entering a dark time. That also isn't an interesting story. It's just a depressing one. So I'm not interested in standing here telling you about what I saw tech do to San Francisco and what I feel it will do to Dublin, because that's a dictation and not a query. I want the folks listening to this with questions. Uh, I want to leave folks listening to this with questions and with a sense of curiosity about the future and tech and their place in that infrastructure as people and as Irish people. I'm preoccupied almost always with stories of how individuals cope with enormous change, with cultural shift, how humans adapt to the constant newness of the world. The breakneck pace of technology and the internet is akin to a magic that we at once created and also can barely control, and it is changing Ireland with it. So what do we do with that? Who are we in this new world? Who will we be as change continues and grows? We can't know what happens everywhere on the internet. It is in many ways parallel to government. It's very almost a lawless realm of thought and image and language. I woke up one day and realized that my phone had become this strange extension of me, <laughs> this weird crutch. And I'm working to undo that dependence and obsession. I first started using the internet a little over 20 years ago when it was a different place. Now children and teenage girls and, and boys and people have a fluency with the internet that even I can never have, even though I've been online almost as long as I can remember. The digital natives, the generation after millennials consume their own media uh, which exists in their palms and on tablets outside of mainstream broadcast culture. They have subcultures all of their own and they are learning how to be in the world from the internet. We can't talk about the future of Ireland and the internet without focusing on them, asking questions about them and of them, these individuals who will helm the next Ireland and the one after that. We're not going to get them to log off. They speak a faster language than we do. They are fluent in something different. In Ways of Seeing, John Berger talks about the difference between seeing and reading. Those of us with sight see before we read. The internet is largely an exercise in seeing. It's a seeing experience. We don't remember a lot of what we see there. It all happens to us so fast. The information happens to us so quickly that it's really hard to retain. A lot of internet usage is passive in that way. Passive like teenage girls staring at the artificially perfect bodies of rich women from America and wondering how to alter their forms accordingly. Passive, like teenage boys listening to conspiracy theories which slowly pull them towards radicalization. Passive, like queer youth absorbing hateful rhetoric on social media about their very existence, their identities. 
they see so much of the world and the tiny portals they hold in their hands. I think when we talk about the future of Ireland and technology what we, and what we want for ourselves is we don't just want people who see the internet. We want them to know how to read it, how to decode it and unpick it. So my blue sky hope is that I think a lot about what might happen if we introduced semiotics, even specifically the semiotics of the internet, into secondary level schooling as part of the English curriculum. How to deconstruct an image. How to tell an authentic news source from a false news source. How to spot algorithmically generated content. How to question what you see in your feed. Think about that word for a second. Feed. If you called a sci-fi novel about the uh, menace of the internet feed, you'd be a bit on the nose, really. This isn't to patronize digital natives. They know what they're doing, all right. But I wonder what the internet is doing to them, too. Introducing semiotics and discussing and discussion of what it is to see and read pictures might empower the next generation of Irish people living in the tech capital of Europe to not just allow the internet to happen to them, uh, to not just hold and use the internet, to not just be online, but to understand it, read it, and hold it at a distance then from their selves. I wonder if the internet should be just a given, a domestic object, or should we treat it with a sense of wonder, like a miracle, and with that chasm between humans and this other online realm, that chasm is a safety. I say this as someone who is way too online, uh, who wakes up and checks her phone, her email, her social media before she says a word aloud into the day. I wonder this for myself as well as for others. And I wonder if we called tech something else. Like we won't, but I wonder if we called it something like magic. Would we treat it like we do or would we not let it so close to us? Tech blooms in Ireland and reconfigures the face of our nation into something else, something that shines harder on a global stage. It's very attractive. It neuters us though. It smooths the edges off us. And it's happening whether we like it or not. And in all of these queries and small portraits of a living dystopia, there is so much hope too. The revolution is online. Marginalized groups gather and support one another there. Life-changing referendums were won with the organizational momentum that bubbled on smartphones and became real. Lived change, even as regressive oppositions paid for targeted ads and used tech for their own cause too. The lonely connect with one another, listen to one another, Creatives find a way to express themselves, fund themselves. There is such wonder possible with technology as there is with any magic in any story. The cost of it on us isn't for nothing. It's undeniable that there is real splendor and a beautiful future possible using technology, but consider that we use it maybe as a tool and not a numbing scroll and not as an impossible mirror, not a sharp object with which to carve away our self-esteem, our sense of purpose, our identity, our nation. Just as I'm concerned with empowering digital natives, Ireland's youth to read the internet, not just to see it, I'm concerned with Ireland reading technology, not just seeing it, looking harder, interpreting what is happening as part of a bigger story, a story with a deep history and a wide context, and deciding what they want the next chapter of that story to be. Query technology. Don't just let it happen to us. Reading it and deciding what we want the future story of ourselves and our country to be is, uh, I think it's pretty vital. Thank you.
Thank you so much for that, Sarah. And I think we'll have a lot to talk about already uh, between our first two speakers. Uh, but this brings us on to our third speaker. Uh, Claire Bailey is a politician with some very real life experience. Uh, she has worked in everything from street performance uh, to working behind the counter in Vision Express before entering Queen's University Belfast as an adult to study politics. She completed her degree while experiencing a period of homelessness. Uh, she then entered politics driven by a sense of anger and a demand for change, uh, and she chose the Green Party as she felt that it was the best home for her feminist politics. In 2016, she was elected to Stormont to represent Belfast South, and in 2018, she was selected as leader of the Green Party of Northern Ireland, which has since experienced a surge in support known popularly as the Green Wave. So let's uh, give a hand for Claire Bailey. Thank you very much. Hard acts to follow. We can't reimagine Ireland without knowing it in all its parts. And I'm a northerner, so that brings a whole other set of experiences. But despite, despite Ireland being a relatively small island, I think there's still a long way to go till we know each other much more intimately. And certainly in the north, we continue to remain a deeply divided society. But despite that, if I reimagine Ireland, the first things that I would call time on straight away would be sectarianism, sexism, racism, and it would most definitely be a post-patriarchy. <laughs> I'm a woman in politics, but I find it really hard to subscribe to the political isms of bygone years, the nationalisms, unionisms, socialisms, conservatism, capitalism, consumerism. I think it's time to call time on those as well. I think that they've been a hamster wheel of disappointment for so long. So my hope for a reimagined Ireland would be one founded on environmentalism, because I think that newism can bring a new world order, and it is possible, if not long overdue. And Ireland can flourish with a committed environmental future. Now, reimagined Ireland is impossible without reimagining relationships between its people, planet, and place. Reconciliation, good relations across the island, and beyond, of course, is an absolute must. It must include sustainability and regeneration, or regenerate connections to the place, to seeing Ireland as part of the wider world and addressing our current ecological and climate crisis. Northern Ireland is a place where our islands overlap. And from a green perspective, we know that the pain that has come and the pain that has happened and the pain that has caused, um, and we can't ignore that. But we should take it as a source of strength, as something to be acknowledged, if not celebrated. And so we reject, and we must reject, the notion of a united Ireland or a unified Ireland that erases or does not acknowledge the reality not least that the British identity and history is also part of these islands. There has to be a warm welcome for all people in any reimagined Ireland. But my reimagined Ireland would also be done without fossil fuels in their entirety. We're done. Leave them in the ground where they belong. Wean ourselves off oil dependency. Let's have an immediate ban on all diesel engines, for example. 
How can we continue to justify allowing the air we breathe to be so poisonous and polluted? We know, but yet we continue. When will we stop? One in nine global deaths per year are attributed to air pollution. A ninth of the world's population, but yet we continue to poison ourselves. Approximately 100 global corporations produce about 70% of global carbon emissions. 100 companies, 70%. My imagined Ireland would find other new ways to trade with other new partners that are not profiteering by continuing the culture of consumerism by forcing us into this hamster wheel. So when I look at the Irish government and their climate action plan, um, this sets decarbonisation plans for within 12 years, which is great. It includes a huge amount of policy shifts, many of them are great, 183 actions to meet targets set by 2030. They state that they want to see 1 million new electric vehicles on the roads. For me, what good will that do unless we're taking 1 million plus off the roads, the polluters are removed. And electric vehicles are not the catch-all, they're not the be-all, they're not the solution. They're part of a good step forward. So who wins if we're going to produce millions of new vehicles to put on the roads? To me, this is a, another corporate win. Retrofitting a half a million houses, but this is good news. It tackles fuel poverty. We're starting to get to the heart of where we need to go to. We're starting to think about people. And it invests in a Green New Deal. It creates jobs. These are good. They also want to see a 70% of their energy come from renewable sources. It's a bit sad when we know that we're capable of 100% that we set our ambitions so low. But this is all predicated on being carbon neutral by 2050. 2050. The International Panel on Climate Change has already given us just 10 years to the point of irrevocable damage done to our climate. 10 years, one decade. Where were you 10 years ago? Where will you be in 10 years? 10 years is not a long time. The State of Nature report released last week claims that close to 300 wildlife species are threatened with extinction in Ireland today. There is no coming back from extinction. Don't believe in Jurassic Park. But this is all so much better than what we have in the north. In the north, we have nothing. We've just gone to consultation on our very first ever environmental strategy. We have 1,000 days without an assembly. We have Brexit, sorry, Brexit to deal with on top of the chaos at Westminster. And while I'm energised by the political greenwashing that's happening, while the message is coming through, where we've got schools going on strike, we've got Extinction Rebellion, I've seen them in Paris, yeah. they're in Dublin today as well. We've got a lot of movement, our discourse, Greta Thunberg, David Attenborough have done huge amounts to put this on the agenda. Other parties are picking this up. It's coming um, through at the political level, but I still remain unconvinced by its integrity. So at the end of the day, Reimagined Ireland, 
has to be based on reconciling peoples across the islands and beyond and needs to replace this simplistic and divisive talk of a new Ireland viewed geographically and politically from a majoritarian point of view. If Northern Ireland teaches us anything, it's the dangers of ungenerous majorities and majoritarian thinking. It should inform how we openly and honestly think creatively about reimagining Ireland. In the context of Brexit, on the one hand, an unhelpful and quite dangerous talk of inevit the inevitability of Ireland United. It's a very simplistic view of the latter as a meaning of a single entity, a single unitary state, for example. We need to be creative, we need to be imaginative. Let's think of ways the current Brexit crisis, by placing it within the larger climate and ecological crisis, can provide opportunities within a very short space of time to seize the, the opportunities within that vacuum and absolutely move forward rapidly to reimagine Ireland. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to our three speakers. I hope you'll agree that was all fascinating and wonderfully different. So we'll get into a bit of a discussion now. And don't forget that if you have a question or a suggestion, a blue sky idea of your own, you can post it on Twitter and tag at Passport Irish. And we'll check the feed and we'll try and incorporate as many as we can into the discussion. So don't be shy. So yeah, just to get started, maybe we can pick up on some of the things you said. Claire, I have a question which is about a carbon neutral island, which is what would it actually look like in terms of infrastructural change and energy system change? Because it would have to be completely transformed, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we already have an all-island electricity grid, for example, so we need to start integrating that. The sector and the experts, they have the solutions, they have the ideas, they are chomping at the bit to get this going. What's holding them back is a political unwillingness to move forward on that one. Where they're starting to look for now is a huge amount on um, battery power, for example. So when we're talking about EVs, electric vehicles, um, and in, in line with your whole technology and the movement and bringing those two together and how are we going to be, how is your living unit, so we'll call it houses or flats or wherever people are going to be living, apartments, how is that unit going to operate, how is the heating system within that, is it going to be individual, is it going to be per street, is it going to be on grid, uh, a lot of people building windmills uh, and generating power for self-sufficiency but yet that's not being tapped into the grid properly, we can't store um, uh, the electricity built or coming from the windmills, for example, because we haven't invested in the infrastructure to save that. So our windmills can produce this energy, but it's nowhere to go, so it's completely wasted. So they're looking at all this storage capture, how to do that. And once we know how we the, the capacity that we can capture that energy on, is how do we do that? So for example, your house and all your appliances in it could be talking to each other, of course, can say when they need to top up on energy. You know, so your car, you could come home from work, park your electric vehicle in, plug it into the side of the wall, and the fridge says, thanks very much, I'm just running low, and they start to feed each other. Uh, you know, these types of things are all going to be happening. Your water will heat at particular times. Um, so it's about that level of sophistication. Technology has 
I, I can't get my head around the speed of the development that's happening within there, but certainly our energy providers are, are starting to look at that and it's to, to decrease the, the carbon. But the beauty that Ireland has, going into the, the other one, is an awful lot of peat and boglands, and we haven't looked after that. We've actively destroyed them. So there's huge efforts to try and do that um, because they are the biggest carbon capture natural resource that we do have so there's a huge amount of work's going on at that sort of environment level to try and get our natural resources not just about planting trees although they're amazing and we want more trees but the natural um the natural environment that ireland produces on its own has to be saved and do those combating but for energy in particular i think it's a really exciting time Okay, right. Um, I'd love to pick up on that, actually. Um, it's, it's such an interesting uh, point that smart homes uh, yeah. could be part of the energy transition. I suppose this could apply uh, to, uh, to all three of you, actually. Um, one of the things, uh, particularly, of course, in, um, in Sarah's fiction, uh, that comes across very strongly is uh, the, the, um, the fact that the internet itself is a force of destruction and it's a force of creation at the same time. So what, I mean, how has it changed the way Irish people see Ireland? Has it changed the way in particular we might see politics and how we see society? And where can we go with that? Maybe if any of you would like to uh, comment. Well, on one, I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts about the internet because I am endlessly suspicious of it. And it often feels like when I start to speak about it, I, I, I wind myself in a position where I'm saying we treat it as though it is a god. And the Irish internet is not indistinct from other internets. How Irish people behave and are and express themselves online is, of course, different from how other people like live online. The American internet, the Irish internet, the way that our identity is imprinted in language and in photography, how we are leaving these thumbprints of who we are, this this written legacy of, of who Ireland is every day is written online. Like we're, we're, we're printing ourselves up there. We're speaking to it. We're showing it what we think. We're showing it what we're eating. You know, like there is this, I, I kind of put posting somewhere up there with prayer. Do you know? That's where people go to have thoughts and to ask for things, to let things out. To, I, I, I think that there's a, you see, it, it sounds nuts, but equally, that's also exactly what it is. So I, I do think that we use it in a distinct way. Our identities as an Irish people are there, but it's so recent that there is so little work done yet on the anthropology of national identity online because it's like it's so new you could pull the plastic off it do you know <clears throat> so i think we're the study that the time to study it i'm sure will arrive but we're still learning to walk with it nearly i think okay I right that's uh, and that, that's of course so relevant as well to uh, what you're talking about uh david um it is so recent and we still don't really know what effect it's having on electoral systems for example mm. so we saw this happening in the most recent referendum where there were accusations uh, at the very least of uh, meddling from from bots and uh, dark web um targeted advertising for uh, electors uh, could you maybe comment on that in the in the context of of uh, forums citizens forums uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a huge challenge. And I mean, there's no doubt from listening to you about the, the extent of the challenge. Um, there's, different w there's different features here, isn't there? I mean, as I, I was saying in some of my remarks, you know, one of the things that we need to catch up on really quickly is how, how we could introduce some sort of regulatory controls. Mm. I mean, the internet was invented on the notion of anarchy. Yeah. That there should never be, that it was, you know, this wonderful gift to humanity. Uh, well, we're way out of that now. It's poison chalice. It. It's fully a poison chalice. Absolutely. So we, we now need to play catch up in terms of 
coming up with robust regulatory processes to at least try and mitigate the worst effects. Could you give us an example of something that, that could be? I mean, I mean I'm, not a, I'm not a techie. <laughs> but, but, I mean, certainly um, the, 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 the evidence from there was a very good initiative done, done during the abortion referendum campaign um, by a couple of, of colleagues um, where they were tracking the inappropriate use of Facebook and Google ads um, by evangel evangelical <laughs> supporters well-funded from North America who had no involvement in the campaign except that they just didn't want abortion on the Irish people. Mm. They had no right to intervene. Uh, they should not have been allowed to intervene, but the state was powerless because it had chosen to be powerless, because it hasn't come up with any regulatory controls. So it needed a private initiative of these concerned citizens to force the hand of Googles and Facebooks for them to uh, do their best late in the day to try and stop these ads. But as a, as a man of a certain vintage, I was still getting those ads on my Facebook account yeah. right up to the voting day. So it didn't work. Did anyone notice any um, targeted advertising during the referendums in here? A few, a few people actually. Okay, mm. all right. Mm. I think that regulating Facebook is going and and Twitter and all of the social media platforms is going to be a tremendously complicated and strange journey. They're private companies. They're private companies operating at a scale that would blind you, and with information on that we don't even realize that we are giving them. That turning that font of private information from a thing that they can make money off of in advertising into something that the government can move with it, it, it's it's such a strange process because then the government has that information and what does that mean do you know it's oof. i wonder if there's a positive way of looking at it um i've done some reporting in estonia and they've reconceived their state as like a digital state so each citizen has um, a digital identity key, which is unique to them, and it's uh, very strongly encrypted. But it, all interactions with the state are done through this key, including voting. Mm. Um, and so it, everything from you know the health service to everything else is is done with this. And I it's, I've also know like it's what you were saying about the difficulty, David, of registering to vote in Ireland is. It's, it's strange when you see other countries like the Netherlands, for example, where you don't have to register to vote. You just have a vote and your ballot comes through your door and that's it. And like then you, you don't need to go jump any hoops to get it. Do you think that maybe technology could be part of the solution? I mean, certainly for me, it would be a lot easier to vote online, I, just to say. I think theoretically, I don't know this. I've heard of the Estonian case where literally you can vote often. I mean, you, 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 you can keep voting on the second day. You oh, you decide. can change it. You can keep changing it. And it's oh. the last time you vote is the vote that counts. So it's quite a fascinating way to, to you know, and, and so you really are voting once, but you still have the chance to change your mind. Um, I, th I think that that's certainly a future that would be wonderful to see, assuming they have robust controls. Mm. Um, but, you know, we, the worry is that people are finding ways to break through and yeah. you see that again and again. So for now... I'm old school, so a, a, a pencil in a polling station is, is, is kind of nice for me. Absolutely. I, I'm totally wedded to that as well. Like having been in the RDS on count day when they're actually counting the paper ballots, it's an inspiring thing to witness. It's this massive human endeavor with all of these volunteers counting. And so um, it is analog, but, you know, robust, as you say. Um, but yeah, with, with the Estonian case, their argument is that they um, view the digital state as actually more robust than a physical one. So their constant historical threat has been of an invasion because they're in a, a kind of a geopolitical choke point with, surrounded by large allies like Russia. Um, and they had this massive wave of tech attacks in 
I think it was 2007, which crippled like almost the, the banking system. Everything came over under attack, suspected to be from Russia. And so in response to that, they built as robust as they can as a state and have backups in all their embassies worldwide. So the theory is, if for any reason they lost control of the geographical state of Estonia, the state would still exist. It would just be a digital state. It was really fascinating and kind of really like blue sky thinking on that. It's really yeah. uto it's really utopic. Yeah. But my my immediate dark side of that was like, so if the if the if the government is a is a digital state, then does policing become a digital endeavor? Do we get penalty points on our identity cards? Like, do do we do our good sides and our bad sides become tracked? Are are we are we being monitored then? Do you know, like on an individual level, how do people exist as citizens within a digital state? Like, uh, is I, I believe they have something that, like that in China, don't they? That they they have sets of points for people. And there, I think there's a, there's a hugely optimistic version of that and a hugely frightening one also. Absolutely. You know? And I can see John Egan in the audience, who I know knows really interesting stuff about that particular case with China. So maybe we can we can bring you in later. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I would love to actually uh, um, to to bring this in a in a slightly different direction. Um, uh, I think Claire and Sarah actually, I'd love to hear your opinions on this. Um, uh, Something I found really interesting about uh, one of your books, uh, Sarah, I think it was Spare and Found Parts, uh, was that it, it, for people who may not have read it, um, it envisages an island of the future, maybe 100 years in the future or so. Years, yeah. And um, what's interesting is the island is partitioned, um, but not north and south. No. It's the Pale, which, of course, many of you will know is an old um, term for the area around Dublin and the pasture. Um, so um, it reminded me of so many things that we hear about North and South. We've heard so often um, from uh, speakers in the North on the podcast um, of the North described as a Belfast city-state, for example. And then, of course, we hear so much uh, in the Republic about all the services going to Dublin. So the island of the future... Um, what is this urban, this very harsh urban-rural divide uh, going to look like, north and south? I'd love to, to uh, hear your thoughts. Maybe, Claire, yeah. yeah I, I think we've a huge amount to do. Um, I think rural communities, in particular in Ireland, have been systemically underinvested in, ignored, left off, wider development. I mean, there's particular areas that I know in the north, I'm sure it's in the south as well, where the internet doesn't exist there is no internet. You can't get it. They still run off four television channels because mm -hmm. you can't get internet TV either. The internet, it's not like you can't just get a signal. It's, it's their internet spot. black spots, yeah. you know. So even that, I imagine everybody in this room is something really hard to get your head around. Yet it's how not long a big has, island. Like, how long has the internet been there? So there's yeah. a huge amount to be done in terms of redistributing not just the, the people and the resource but what happens in there as well why has it all been sucked into urban centers is that not where we started to go wrong by bringing it all into this this real contained spot you know and just identifying them and we know exactly why you know their harbor and port cities and that's where industry grew up and um, but when we start going back and having a look at what happens in the rural areas and um, where's their strengths and actually we need them you know so that redistribution has to come as well absolutely mm. i would say that i would really really heavily agree with that the idea of decentralizing tech is something that i i think a lot about um when I was living in San Francisco, however, the, it was a two-hour bus ride to Silicon Valley, but day after day, Google and Facebook and the other campuses would run buses up and down the side of uh, the, the bay um, uh, to bring people who live in the city to work in the valley. And uh, 
I, I, I would love a world where rather than decimating my beautiful Dublin with horrendous buildings, um, maybe they, maybe Facebook opened a giant campus in Sligo and threw some infrastructure in while they were at it. Do you know? And I, I recognize how that sounds. Like, <laughs> but equally, they're here now. They don't really need to be in Dublin. You know, uh, housing is cheaper in, in different areas. So if folks were moving into Ireland in order to set up life and work in tech, it's a much more attractive environment. There, there are less schools, there are less shops, but communities build around employment. And, and I, I think that if the tech companies were to look further afield and undertake some development in small towns and the building of new communities, and it would take the pressure off Dublin for one thing, which cannot sustain the changes that are happening at the moment. And uh, I, I don't know if it'll ever, it'll ever happen, but it, I think that the decentralization of employment and of of, uh, of the tech centres would be a really great start. Then blue ter- can I come back with blue sky thinking that to move it on from just the existing structures that we have at the minute. Of course, people go to where the jobs are or mm. where work is or where they can have an income, but you know, outside that urban and tech and high, fast-paced lifestyle, we need to step back and have a wee look at who we are as human beings and what we need to exist, you know, because this relentless having to keep up, having to keep up. Google coming to pick me up on a bus to drive me out to Sligo. I would not be on that bus. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. (laughs) I'd want to stop somewhere. Uh, You know, I I would rather have a bit of peace and quiet, you know, (laughs) and we forget the value, what we need as humans. We need peace and quiet. We need relaxation. We need to address this work culture that we've developed, you know, not for our need, but for corporate greed. Uh, And start looking and renegotiating those as well. There's a huge amount of health, well-being uh, and economics to be had from our more rural or less urban spots as well. So it's about the value that we place on that too. I, I have a thought about it. What do you, I'd love to run this by you. Um, so one aspect which might favour it is the fact of sea level rise that we might get, which is unpredictable, but maybe one metre by the ent- end of the century, possibly two, possibly three. If it's three, then we might be looking at you know 15 metres within two centuries, so it's kind of unpredictable. But um, it would have really serious consequences for our cities, um, which are mostly coastal and built along uh, rivers. So um, already we have flooding issues in Ireland along the Shannon in particular. And either it means whatever level of rise there is, um, we have to make a decision about whether we build defences and infrastructure in the cities to protect them, or do we decide to start building elsewhere? And I wonder about the idea of moving the capital. Why does the capital have to be Dublin? Cork would be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> They've been waiting. They've what been about, waiting. <laughs> what about somewhere like along the border or in the Midlands, yeah. somewhere in the middle of the country, somewhere high, um, and then we could that could really help to decentralise the country? Because it's it's been done in lots of countries. Countries like Brazil has a different uh, governance capital, and maybe that could incentivize other you know distribution of the industry around. Um, I don't know. What, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea. Going into the utopia idea, you know, <laughs> y- your government just might be in that iCloud up there. You know, yeah, it's, it's going to go into the technology state. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, all of this. Uh, and if we even look at, I don't even see how that's too far ahead in the future anyway. When we look at the current state of the islands, and that's England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, North and South as well, 
so much political upheaval that's going on. Uh, and regardless of what's going to be at the <clears> other <throat> side, whether Brexit happens, doesn't happen, happens this way, happens another way, or a border poll happens and people have uh, have to have our citizens' assemblies to, to take on all these issues, there's a real, whatever way it's going to play out, something will be changed at the other side, without doubt. Um, and to me, we need to get our planning right for that, um, whether that be the political planning or the, the, the more um, structural, as you're talking. So in Belfast, we're, again, we're going to be wiped out with huge amounts of flooding. Um, what we're investing in at the minute in our city centre is an area called the Cathedral Quarter, which is really the developers are in trying to t turn it into Temple Bar. Uh, and there's huge amount of money being put in there. It's going to be the first area to go. And we've known this forever. So they're pumping all these millions and billions of pounds regenerating this area where if we don't address the environmental chaos that's going on, it's going to be Atlanta. Shagoo is literally on the canal. Like, yeah. It's exactly the same. Yeah. It's so I think that we have to encourage this thinking elsewhere you know yeah. and if we can't bring the business sectors or those that are stuck in the in this notion of but it's here i've built it and yeah. they can't be fluid or flexible enough to move on then let's go do it without them mm. i mean the thing is the word utopian is used a lot tonight and no, no surprise um but another meaning of utopian is difficult yeah um and so you know, what we're talking about is some really rather important decisions that whether we like it or not, eventually our country and many other countries around the world are going to have to take. They sound utopian now, but they are difficult decisions. And I don't think it's often noticed, but one of the main campaign foci of Extinction Rebellion, at least in the British campaign, one of the main demands of Extinction Rebellion is for a citizens' assembly. That's all they're asking for. They are asking that the British government establishes a citizens' assembly and gives it resources and time to have regular citizens in the room talking about utopian issues to do with what are we going to do about this climate emergency. Because it's obvious if you stick citizens in the room and give them the information that they need, they're going to start talking about the difficult decisions that politicians, God love them, can't because they have to face re-election in three or four years' time. So this is exactly the sort of device that might help to solve some of these utopian uh, agenda items. Yeah, jumping off that, um, uh, uh, something that would be really interesting in the context of a citizens' assembly is um, another difficult decision that has come at us much sooner than we thought that it would, and that is the prospect of reunification um, of Ireland. Um, this is, uh, like, uh, like, we, like Claire mentioned earlier, this is you know, one of these fallouts of Brexit that we didn't think we would have to cope with you know, quite so soon. And now we're having to think about very quickly how to deal with preparations for that. What place would a citizens' assembly have in the question of unification? I think it's really important. We were talking about this just before. Um, in, in, in my uh, part of the university of, in UCD, in University College Dublin, there's a unit that right now is trying to get some funding together to come up with an idea for a citizens' assembly. And it's a difficult thing because for this to really work, you want it to be a citizens' assembly that is accepted by all parties, ideally, on all, in all parts of uh, Ireland and potentially beyond. So it needs to talk about difficult things like, you know, should we have a capital city outside of Dublin as part of this? Um, should we include Scotland in the equation? Uh, should we include, include a membership of the British Commonwealth? Should we include things that are difficult for people from, you know, our side of the border just as much as things might be difficult for people from the other side of the border? 
difficult things. And again, it's something that needs proper reflective out of the heat of party battle type of discussions. This is the sort of thing that a citizens' assembly does best, it, dealing with highly emotive, difficult topics. And, and I would have thought it's perfect for this. Okay, right. I'm a, it just has actually occurred to me that maybe not everyone is entirely um, uh, familiar with what a citizens' assembly is. If you could pitch it in a in a yeah. tweet size. Yes, does anyone in deep pockets, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, so a citizens' assembly is a, a number, usually fifty to a hundred people. Like as this, I said, this room, more or less. Yeah, selected at random, um, and that's so important. You know, in in Iceland, when they had their crisis, they you know Ireland and Iceland competes as to who had the worst economic crisis in 2008, 2009. <laughs> yeah. and, and so their thing was they set up a, I think they called it a constitutional council, 25 Icelandic citizens. But those 25 citizens ran for office. They ran for election. Mm. So what happened was they then felt they had a mandate because mm. they had run for election. And that produced the wrong, produces the wrong chemistry in the room. If you are selected, somebody knocks on your door and says, you're it. I mean, many people will slam the door. But eventually enough people will say, okay, I'll come to Dublin and I'll spend five months discussing abortion. Because that's what it was, five months in a hotel in Malahide in North Dublin discussing abortion. And, you know, with people outside holding up pictures as of fetuses, uh, police escorts in the hotel to make sure that everyone is safe, Psych psychologists on hand to help the members get over the shock of listening to personal testimony of women who in some way or another have been impacted by the abortion ban in Ireland. Um, really difficult, difficult, tough things, but also so rewarding. And when you, when you interview or hear, there's some very good film work done on some of this, the citizens themselves and the impact on them of having been involved, invited by their government to be brought into the room, to be educated and up, you know, brought up to speed by listening to experts, but also advocates. I mean, we had Catholic bishops, you know, when they discussed marriage equality in the Constitutional Convention, they had adult children of same-sex couples. So you, you've got a real mix of people coming in to educate and inform the members. And their job is to advise. They're not taking over the system. They're just providing an advisory role so that they provide a degree of cover. So when Micheál Martin, the leader of the Fianna Fáil party, stood up in the Dáil, um, early in 2018, and to the consternation of his own parliamentary party, said that he was going to vote for abortion and that he was going to vote in favour of 12 weeks unrestricted access to abortion. People in his own party couldn't believe what they were hearing. And he said, the reason I'm doing that is because I've become educated. I've read the evidence. I've looked at the videos to both the Citizens' Assembly and to the parliamentary committee that followed after that. And it's informed me in a way that I never would have been informed before. Bringing the politicians along, that's such an important part of, of the piece. And I think it's a, an amazing model to be able to bring in to Northern Ireland as well. And because we are still such a divided society, I mean, I know that we had our Good Friday Agreement um, back in 1998 and everybody thinks that peace happened. Well, it hasn't really. You know, we have a frozen peace. Um, and I would argue that what we've had is a political process over a peace process. Um, so the investment in those communities that were hardest affected, um, have, they, they haven't seen um, 
the, the outworkings, they haven't seen any benefit. They're still there. So our communities are divided, our housing is divided, our schools are segregated. This all still goes on. So that institutional change didn't come. The levels of deprivation, trauma have not been addressed. The intergenerational trauma that is now coming is just getting wider and wider. We have more people have died by suicide in Northern Ireland than were ever killed since the Good Friday Agreement that were ever killed during the Troubles. We have real problems to deal with, and yet we do not understand the others still. We haven't got those spaces where we feel safe to have those utopian, if you want to use it in the, the fearful sense, to have those uncomfortable conversations and to learn from each other, which is why the Citizens' Assembly model is absolutely critical. I see it as a real hopeful ideal, idea to, to bring in to the context that we have, and particularly when people are throwing out border poles, Brexit is threatening this. We have a very fragile piece, it's a frozen piece. Identities are on the edge again, people are feeling very, very insecure. Um, so that model, just to bring in and try and work and allow the exploration, to talk about the tricky things, to try and calm, uh, 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 just create a different environment altogether. And when you deal with fact and evidence, you know, I, I've no doubt that a new Ireland is coming, but it's not called Brexit and it's not called unity. It's called climate chaos. She's here. She's happening. Um, we need to get our head around that. It's, it's interesting what you say. It's something, one of my strongest impressions from reporting in Northern Ireland is this huge mental disconnect between people who are politicians and ordinary people, where the politicians are at loggerheads and can't, don't, or just, you know, not making any progress, won't get in the same room. Whereas when you talk to ordinary people, they're much more open to compromise and, and discussion and than, than the politicians are. At least that's my impression anyway. Um, but we got some great suggestions and, and questions over Twitter, so I might bring in one of those. And I can see John is putting up his hand. We'll get to questions from the audience after that. But just to kind of throw some quick ideas at you um, that came over Twitter, um, building a land bridge or tunnel to the UK. <laughs> yeah or nay. Yeah yeah or nay. nay. <laughs> Straight to Scotland, isn't it? <laughs> I'd rather build some bridges internally before we go external. <laughs> 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 well, is that is that person here? Do you want to explain your suggestion? Um, I mean, in England, the biggest the actual border between England and the EU, apart from on the Northern Irish border, is the Channel Tunnel. I read this article that was completely pro building either a bridge or a tunnel because so much of Ireland's trade is with the UK. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Another suggestion that came over uh, Twitter was well, actually, more of a question was just to go into a bit more detail on the justification for giving votes to people who are 16 and 17. Any thoughts? Yeah. I feel they are the people who are inheriting the earth and the choices that are made by the government impact them profoundly, especially at the moment regarding climate issues. Um, especially, for example, when the abortion referendum happened, there are people who are 16 who can be pregnant and we are voting for them. And in many cases, people were voting against their right for medical treatment. So I think, I, I, I think it's completely necessary for our youth to be given the right to vote because they're going to be here longer than we are. So the change that they can make to the country starts now. And they should be, and they also want to. Mm -hmm. They're curious. They're activated. They're extremely online. You know, they, they want to be part of it. So I, I feel that we should call them in and empowering them is uh, 
Oh, it's, it's necessary. It's, it's, I, I think so. Anyway. And David, you mentioned some evidence that 16 isn't the appropriate age rather than 15, rather than something else, right? It's well, well, the argument, you know, it's been around for quite a while in political science trying to explain the fact that over time, less and less of us vote. Turnout is going down. And the analysis shows that one of the biggest reasons for that is every successive cohort of 18-year-olds that enters the system votes less than the previous cohort. So the infection is starting with 18-year-olds coming into the system and being less inclined to vote. Well, what happens when you're 18? And when I was 18, I went to university. So the first election that would come up, okay, I had a parent who made sure I was going to vote. But more likely than not, you're living away from home for the first time. Either you're at university or you've started a life in some other way. You're away from home. You're away from school. You're now becoming an independent, an independent adult. And it's a very exciting time of your life. An election is not necessarily the first thing you're going to think of. Whereas if you're 16 and in school, and by the way, you know, bringing in votes at 16 should be combined with an education system that caters yeah. for that as well. That's Absolutely, crucially part yeah. of it. But if you're in the school, your teachers are going to be telling you about the importance of the democratic vote. And your parents are more likely than not going to be able to bring you along when they go and vote. And so the, the theory for a while, at least from some of us who've been promoting this idea, is that bringing the voting age down just by those two years could do so much to stem the decline of voting turnout. And so far, preliminary research from the Austrian case that I've seen, because Austria was the first of the larger democracies, uh, if you like, to move to votes of 16, is showing that the 16 to 18-year-old cohort is that bit more interested in politics than their 18 to 20 um, uh, peer group. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be working. And also in the specific Irish case, because... Um, your voting right is so strongly tied in the Republic to your physical location and you're expected to be physically present in the voting poll in the townland where you've always been. And it's very, you know, young people are very mobile, of course. So that's moving away from home at 18 has a particular tendency to, to kind of disenfranchise you as well. And remember that many 16-year-olds are taxed by the states. I was going to say, I was working mm -hmm. when I was 15. If the state's yeah. going to take taxes from you, I think that they could return the favour and allow you to say. Sure. Yeah. They'll let you into the army too. Yeah. You know, if you can work, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe we can let John ask yeah. his question. Um, can we bring the microphone to the gentleman there on the right and then we'll maybe take some more questions from the floor? I sat in the most awkward place possible for a microphone. Um, thanks, Tim and Naomi, as well, for doing this in Paris again. It's wonderful to have you guys here. And thanks to the speakers for an invigorating conversation. I'm full of ideas. But I wanted to put a specific challenge on Citizens' Assemblies to David in the context that was set here tonight by Sarah and Claire and the, the, the Blue Sky vision itself, which is the suggestion that a Citizens' Assembly can be very effective at bringing a country that is behind the times on a certain issue, closer to zero, in the Irish instance, that was on uh, female reproductive rights and on marriage equality, but it doesn't do a particularly good job at bringing you past that point, as in progressive or visionary, because it requires expertise in order to set a long-term vision. So in the context of technology, climate, and blue sky thinking, my challenge would be, I am yet to see evidence, and, and I know, Naomi, you might remember last year the political article that was quite critical of citizens' assemblies. Um, the My reality article. Of it. Oh, it was your article, was yeah. it? There you go. <laughs> and I spoke to David in it. But we could, we could, if, I would say critical is a bit unfair, but anyway. Okay, on, okay. Yes. Well, I've just shown how well I remember the article, so maybe forget it. But the, uh, my, my point would be that 
we've seen over and over again that it requires expertise to establish a, uh, a privileged, um, understood, comprehensive long-term view of a, of a particular issue. And citizens' assemblies are, are bereft of that necessary fluidity, fluency, and expertise required to actually establish a long-term view on very technical issues, like the, the technical societal impact of the internet, of the way that AI is corrupting the social contract between labor and capital, uh, and, 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 and climate, and the way we interact with climate, which is far too complex for the majority of people to really understand. So that's my um, challenge to you, I suppose, on citizens' assemblies. I wonder, would that be something you accept, or would you push back? Can you defend the limits of the citizens' assembly? No doubt there are limits. I mean, I always say that we're still at an experimental phase, and there were so many things, you know, Naomi's article was so right, so many things about the Irish processes that were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I always say that whenever I'm giving talks about it. But it was moving the dial a little, at least, towards something that's better than we had before. I completely agree with you. I mean, one of the big weaknesses of the Irish processes is that the agenda has been so tightly controlled by the government. And so we're waiting, you know. So now it's Leo who suddenly says, aha, we'll have one on gender equality. So he's decided that he's going to have the next one, and it's going to be on that topic. And so for exactly the sort of things that you're talking about, you know, whether it's AI or, you know, dealing with very technical features to do with trying to control the, the internet or whatever it might be, that's why I go back to my, my fifth wish or the fifth thing that I would love of a permanent process where it itself sets its own agenda. You've now abolished the Shannad, you've replaced it with the Citizens' Council, you've given it the resources, its own secretariat, and it runs itself the politicians no longer have any say over it. They've set it up and they've set it, they've set it loose. And its job is to come up with its own agenda items and set up discrete citizens' assemblies for each of those topics. So it might be a citizens' assembly on a relatively small topic that may only take a weekend to discuss, or it might be something that takes a year. Mm. But it has the right to do that. And I think it's that sort of way of moving the dial to the next stage that we might start seeing the citizens' assembly really dealing with tough, tough issues for the future rather than, as you say, bringing us up to the present day. This gentleman here. Uh, thank you for being here. It's fascinating. Uh, we're visiting from the San Francisco Bay Area. Hey. Um, <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> what do you see uh, um, the future of plant-based eating in Ireland? Um, every time I go as a visitor to Ireland, I see the choices in plant-based vegan food going up exponentially, which is really great. And um, given the growing evidence of the links between diet and global warming, um, it's a trend that for me is, is, is great. And um, what, where do you see that going? Where would you like to see that going? Claire, I suppose. I see it absolutely it is growing, is capturing um, a lot of particularly young people um, in terms of the, the environmental impact. Um, so my daughter had been vegetarian for most of her days. I think she was in her very early teens, if not before, but, um, but now is going into vegan. And that impacts even in my own household and the rest of my family as well. So we don't even do dairy milk anymore. We do oat milk, you know, these types of changes. <laughs> and those types of changes. But this is um, really 
just ratcheting out. But I don't think that our, our food supply and our food scene is keeping up with it either. But when I can sit here and tell an audience that we have more than one vegan restaurant in Belfast, you know something good's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know our food scene and our just our food culture at, at that level um, has always been quite staid and, and small. So uh, there's a burgeoning scene happening uh, and I think it has absolutely been driven by younger people. Which is great to see. I promised him that I would raise a point in this show, which is the fact that cattle rearing for meat and dairy is incredibly important to the Irish economy. Like it has been historically, it remains so. It's also extremely powerful politically. And the argument is that the way that farming is done in in Ireland um, when it comes to, to beef and dairy, it's done much better than in many other parts of the world because we have abundant grass and it's kind of, you know, it's a much more natural environment for, for cows to live rather than in giant feedlots where they just live in this dust and dirt and it's much more more polluting. Is it too politically difficult to transition away from that? And would we even want to? It is a big one. Um, um, I have to say that you get a huge amount of resistance from farmers as well. But I think that we have to start looking bigger than that. And um, because it's an industry doesn't mean it can't be something else. And um, because it is as it is now doesn't mean that it can't be changed. So, for example, a huge part of our industry, and, and it's been really highlighted with Brexit as well but in the dairy sector, is that farmers in the north are producing the milk from the cows and then it goes to the factory in the south to be turned into powder milk or pasteurized and then sent back up again so those farmers can sell it to china just putting that out there <laughs> <All right. laughs> okay listen we have time for one last quick question i think this gentleman here yes had his hand up hi there uh listen thank you all first of all because listening to you makes me feel more sane quite frankly <laughs> uh i kind of had a weird idea which like i said seems more sane now having listened to you but uh, what, what would you think of the idea of kind of some form of federalization with the different provinces in Ireland getting more control, you know, over their jurisdictions with some kind of central government established in, say, the Midlands just to get some investment in there? Do you, do you think that would be in any way feasible, helpful? And like it could happen after the uh, uh, border poll or something like that, regardless of the result, just to make sure that, you know, everyone gets to form uh, what Ireland could become going forward to the future. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that's a, a mad idea. I, in this, in this uh, notion of blue skies thinking, I, you know, going right back to what you were saying earlier on, if we are seriously going to engage in a discussion, a proper discussion about the future of the island of Ireland, then all bets should be off. Yeah. Everything should be open for discussion. And, it, 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 and I think in particular, as I'm sort of intimating earlier on, that should include sacrifices from our side of the border, much as we might expect it from the other side. So everyone should expect a blank sheet and let's see what kind of system we come up with. So something like that could certainly be one of the options. Mm. Okay, I'm going to cut you off there because we can fit in one last and with such a supplicant wave over here. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Katsina Nyukhanila. I'm the new Irish language uh, uh, teacher here. just started two weeks ago. My uh, point was that uh, within the Irish uh, education system in Ireland, uh, people are made to do the Irish language. I come from the Gaeltacht. It's my first language. I didn't speak any English until I was 10. I probably could have survived another 10 years without having to speak it. But it's not fair to um, make people learn a language that, in, uh, that they're not going to be using. And why the reason I'm saying that is because 
they learn vast amounts of text and poetry and stories and all this stuff for their leaving cert. And they say, what on earth am I learning all this for? What, why? And then they vomit it out for the exam and after have spent like hours memorizing it. And if you ask them a year later, what was that about? They couldn't even have a conversation with you in the Irish language. Uh, so even though it pains me to say it, the teachers that are teaching the language in Ireland are also at fault, but not at fault, because they have gone through the system. And it's just that the, the system for teaching Irish from the ground up is completely and utterly wrong. They tried to change it, it didn't make any difference. It's still going on, nothing has changed. And I just could not let this finish because it's our national language and I just don't know what the answer is or how it's going to be fixed, but something has to be done about it. Gurmila Mahal. Thank you very much, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Maybe before getting any responses, there was one last question. It would be more interesting to hear the questions almost. Than yeah, the, the questions are amazing. Stage. Let's hear, yeah. <laughs> this, you this had a question here. as well. Yeah. Um, and just on that language point, I mean, I would love to see a revolution in language learning in all, lots of languages in Ireland, you know, like many Anglophone, predominantly Anglophone, Anglophone countries, we suffer from, you know, a, a kind of a monofocus on English and we get away with using it a lot. But I'm someone who, like, I was fortunate enough to learn languages and I just think it's such a wonderful thing that people should be able to do. And I think that there definitely are positive ideas about how we can do things differently. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful about it. But yeah, and when you, you bring that north, it comes at a contentious issue as well. So there's a burgeoning um, Irish language speaking community. We've got a lot of schools opening. We've got yeah. the Blobby. We've got a Gaeltacht quarter in West Belfast. And But the, the politicization of the language is just you know, not allowing that to develop where it should be going. But we have a lot of people in East Belfast um, uh, from a Protestant background as well who are fighting to, you know, have the acknowledge that they're Gael Gores as well and that they speak fluently and it's their heritage and their pride. So maybe we could have a conversation about how you're talking about teaching. I'm talking about depoliticizing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, please go ahead. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Anne Garvey. I work with the Association Irish in France. So thanks so much for everything that you've all said. It's been a fascinating evening. Uh, there are just a couple of things that I wanted to say. Irish in France, we've been discussing the idea of voting rights and the examining that it is, yes, a civic um, entitlement and that, you know, that we would really be interested in uh, in having that vote presidential, perhaps, firstly. Uh, who knows what will happen going forward? But that is something that we are very, very interested in. On a personal level, I'd like to ask, what is there any a Blue Skies uh, initiative for me would be to have the government put in place some kind of commission to examine uh, establishing new towns, new centres of development, if that is on the in the pipeline somewhere. I'm from Shannon in County Clare, which was a new town established in the 60s uh, and was basically on reclaimed land uh, and people were installed there. We had a huge population from uh, returned immigrants from England, people from Belfast who came down in the early 70s. We have a large Belfast population down there uh, who have been so dynamic in creating the town spirit. But it was a town that grew from nothing. It has been kind of forgotten in the last couple of years. But the community spirit, and that's where you see citizens coming in and taking matters into their own hands, creating something from nothing. So yeah, a commission to establish 
to take it away from Dublin. Dublin is saturated. And and to give life back to regions in the country yeah. by establishing and developing existing structures yeah. there. Okay. All right. Why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Um, I don't think we have a minute more. Yeah, uh, just come right up against that. time. Come right up against time. We don't want to keep you all night either. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much to your uh, for your contributions yeah. uh, to absolutely everybody, audience and panel. And I'd like just a big round of applause for them and yourselves again. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. We also have some small gifts to thank our guests for their wonderful contributions. Uh, <laughs> their little bags of the podcast. I love the <laughs> thank you very much. Here you go. Oh little book bag. I love it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Oh my gosh. And um, we also uh, have extra ones for sale if you want to buy one um, to fund the podcast. Just come up and, and ask us for them. Um, if you like, and uh, yeah, if you liked what you heard this evening, and maybe you're not a listener already, um, do subscribe to us We're on iTunes, Spotify, all the podcast apps, and uh, all the information should be on that little card that was on your seat when you sat down. And a special thank you, of course, to the Centre Culturel Irlandais, the CCI here in Paris, for being so accommodating and for letting us use this fantastic space. Um, and for anyone who's listening online, who is passing through Paris, um, I think you'll all agree that I highly recommend that they stop in here and check out some of the fantastic <laughs> cultural <laughs> stuff that's going on exhibitions and events all the time throughout the year so thank you very much okay Gordon Mina Mahagwe I guess yeah Sloan everyone Sloan